Yeah. Uh, when you said game, is this like uh like for your son, a game? No, I, I still play uh, baseball. Oh, cool. Not softball, but baseball. So yeah, we uh, it's a men's senior league, and um, yeah, we'll, we'll pro- each play in two different divisions. So it's like round or t- give or take about fifty games in the summer. But um, today we're not playing. <laughs> the weather is not allowing that to happen. How long? So you grew up playing baseball too? I grew up, and then in high school, I hurt my arm, so I didn't play anymore. And then when I was turning my business around, I started creating goals to keep me you know, inspired and motivated. And one year in 2008 or nine, I created a goal to go to Detroit Tigers face fantasy baseball camp down in Florida. And we hit the goal and I went, fell back in love with the sport, started playing locally in 2010 and been playing ever since. What position do you play? Uh, well, at this stage, when I was younger, I played a lot of first base because there are um, older guys who could, younger guys who could still run and play. Uh, as I've gotten older and guys have gotten more broken down, I now play the outfield or third base because I can I can still move. Oh, so you're still quick and fast. Yeah, and... <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think in 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 the I average per year about 15 stolen bases. Oh wow! So yeah, I'll still run. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, who's your favorite baseball player? Gosh, it's such a you'd think it'd be an easy question, right? Oh, you know, what's the greatest day of your business life? And, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of like who, asking who your favorite child is. Um, I love them all. I just love them differently. Uh, and I've met so many, I've been blessed. I've met so many baseball players. In, I mean, I'm 54. I started started collecting autographs and baseball cards when I was 12, and I still have pretty much all of my stuff. So if you see, like, the background, like, this is not a screen. This is, like, there's, like, 300 baseballs back there. Wow. Um, so I'd say probably my, just my favorite player of all time is uh, former Detroit Tiger catcher Lance Parrish from the 84 World Series team. I met him numerous times. We just love watching him play as a kid, but he's just genuinely nice. Mm-hmm. Like they say, don't meet your heroes because they'll disappoint you. And I've had that happen with some guys. But um, Lance exceeded my my already high expectations. Well, I've, I've actually I've never heard of Lance Parrish. Okay. But I wasn't uh, that World Series in 1984 for the Detroit Tigers. That was well before my time a little bit. I was looking at you. I'm kind of <laughs> guessing the same thing. Yeah, I was. Uh, I was born in 1991. Oh, so you, oh, you're the yeah. same age as my son. He was born in 91. Oh, cool. Okay. Nice. I have not seen very too many very. Uh, well, no, I have seen successful Tigers teams in 2006, 2012. Yeah. But. Not a World Series yet. Hopefully, no. Hopefully, one day. Not. I'm guessing anytime soon. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. But if you just take a look at the poor, you know, when entrepreneurship, when you're Mike Illich and you're starting a business, or you're, you know, first generation is usually much more aggressive than second gen. Just think about it like um, wealth creation versus wealth preservation. Illich was about wealth creation. Then he was like, I'm going to die someday, and I'm going to spend my money to make this baseball team, make this hockey team successful. Whereas kid is like, well, you know, we got to make sure we, we're fiscally responsible. And it's just a different mindset. I and, can totally see that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so it's kind of like, if you like football, it's like, oh, well, I find second generations are often playing prevent defense, not trying to score more touchdowns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I totally get what you're saying. You're playing, you're playing not to lose. You're not right. playing to win. Not playing to win. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, if you look, I mean, businesses have a, such a high failure rate as it is. Like, I saw something recently, like where it's oh, somewhere between seventy-five and eighty-two percent of companies that start aren't going to make it. Mm-hmm. Then you take a look at second generation and third generation failures; it exceeds ninety percent. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah. Um, really quick, Todd, before we continue, because I I actually did start recording. I just like doing these rolling introductions. Oh sure, that's completely um, cool. <laughs> um, but really quick, everybody. Hi, my name is Chris. This is Cheetash, and today joined by a very special guest, Mr. Todd Palmer, author of From Suck to Success. Todd, thank you very much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, Chris, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to your show. Um, really quick, Todd, j- can you give just like a brief introduction on yourself and the book that you wrote? Sure. Um, 
I was president and founder of a company in Metro Detroit called, uh, named Diversified Industrial Staffing, and I owned that business for 24 years. Um, during that time, I had a lot of highs and lows as an entrepreneur CEO. And um, yeah, 2006, the business was in really bad shape due to my deficiencies as a leader. You know, I am the cause of and the solution to all of my problems. And um, the bank decided they were going to no longer work with staffing companies. We didn't fit their risk, what's called a risk portfolio. And they wanted to be paid back. We owed them about $600,000. We saw our revenue was declining. We had a big client here in Metro Detroit uh, go bankrupt and owing us over, over uh, gosh, $250,000. And we were, on paper, we were bankrupt. And I just didn't know it. I didn't have enough financial literacy at the time. So the bank called, said, we're going to execute the personal guarantee, which is a personal guarantee I had signed, which means I pledged my house and all of my assets. And they they said they were they were more than willing to go for all those all those assets to be satisfied in what we owed them. In that process, I became what is called clinically depressed. Um, I did not get out of bed for three days after that conversation with the bank. And on day three, I got up and I decided to that I had not done my very best as a CEO. If I'm going to have to file personal bankruptcy, I'm going to go all in and I'm going to do my best to fix this business. And I spent money I did not have and I hired my first coach. Fast forward seven years later, we renegotiated the bank covenant. We satisfied the money. We paid it all back. No pennies or no discounts, 100% paid back. And with the help of my coach retooling my business, we went from $600,000 in debt to making this list called the Inc. 5000, which are the 5,000 fastest growing small businesses in the United States, a Michigan record at the time, six times. So that's kind of where we were sucking, being massively in debt. We became successful. And I exited that company six years ago. Now I coach 23 CEOs and C-level leaders around the globe. And I speak on entrepreneurship and talk about mindset. I call it the itty bitty shitty committee. It's the, it's the internal dialogue that holds us back that I went through. And, um, yeah, that's kind of the genesis of the business, the genesis, a little bit of my leadership and where I, what I do today is coach these CEOs. Wow, very cool. Um, yeah, your story is incredible uh, that you outline in the book. Um, with, with your business, I wanted to ask you, did anything that was happening around that time, 2006, was the, because the great financial crisis was kind of looming. Um, yep. It w I don't know if it was just starting or if it was still like around the corner. Did any of that have anything to do with, you know, some of the troubles that you experienced? 100%. 100%. I don't know. By owning a staffing and recruiting company in the, in the world of the, the finance people, bankers, Wall Street projectors, they look at certain categories, which again, this is all stuff I've learned post, not during. Um, but in 2006, they were saying we're headed towards a massive recession. As I mentioned, my revenue was declining. So if you're not bringing on a contingent workforce, that means you probably don't have a lot of work, especially in we did manufacturing staffing. And what I learned, unfortunately, almost too late, was that staffing companies are what's called leading economic indicator for recessions. So we were declining. Our clients were discharging us in bankruptcy. They were placing less orders for people. And we, we actually, staffing companies experience a recession typically about 12 to 18 months before other businesses. So we, that's that's why our bank decided they no longer wanted to work with our category. And um, yeah, it was, it was the, we were in the storm much quicker than, than other, other sectors uh, of the financial space. Okay. And now when I think of staffing, uh, I think of, like, is it the same thing as recruiting? Like when on LinkedIn, recruiters will reach out to me trying to fill certain positions with their company. Mm -hmm. it, is that similar or is it a little different? No, it's, it's, it's very similar. It's, it depends on what category you're in. And back in 2006, we weren't really using LinkedIn. We were doing um, di different job boards. Monster was big at the time. I mean, the world has changed significantly. And um, when, we did, when we figured out the turnaround piece of things, we figured out what we figured out is what we wanted to do is be more of a sports agent or a Hollywood agent versus filling job orders. Company would call you up, hey, I need three welders and two machinists. We would go out and seek them. What we decided to do, especially in downtimes, 
is when you know the Michigan's unemployment rate over a, a two-year period went from about four percent to fifteen percent, which meant there were a lot of people looking for jobs, not a lot of companies looking for people. So we decided to engage those displaced workers, create uh, systems and inventories of those people, and start marketing them back to non-automotive manufacturers, aerospace, medical device, etc., because those skills could transfer. So we wanted to be ahead of that. And then we figured out Chicago needed machine repair people for food, food processing. And Houston needed a lot of welders, especially underwater welders, for the oil derricks that sat in the Gulf Coast. So we figured out these three categories. We decided to own the inventory and sell it back into the marketplace. Okay. I, I like that. Like uh, viewing it as a Hollywood agent or sports agent versus you're just taking like a request from somebody. Right. Yeah. Well, we, we felt when we took the requests, we were a commodity and there was, you know, they were calling us, they were calling our competitors and it was a race against the clock to fill the order. We felt if we controlled the candidate space, we could actually do a couple of things. We could sell it back into market. We could call a company and it became, well, we're not hiring. We, we pretty much knew that when, you know, this is back in the days where actually people would pick up the phone and they would say, we're not hiring. So great. We understand that when you, when you do anticipate hiring, what is the, what is you, what do you think is the hardest thing you're going to need to fill? And we would track that. And we kept seeing these patterns in these cities of what people, businesses where they were going to need. In Michigan, it was, you know, high-end CNC machinists. There was a thing called Mazak Mazatrol, which is a, a, a software. Think about like your iOS phone getting an update. Well, mach, you know, machines and manufacturing have a program language also. Well, we figured out if we can own that inventory, since that's the first thing that's going to turn around, We'll just start selling it back in and we'll start selling it back in. All of a sudden, these companies started saying, yeah, we're not hiring anybody. Oh, that's too bad. I've got this great Mazak. Oh, you got a Mazak guy? Oh, well, we'd like to talk to him. And we, so what we figured is we could if we control the inventory, sell it back to marketplace. It gave us two advantages. One, we could charge more because I've got a rarity. It's you know, like in the collectibles market now. I've got a one of one. i got a rarity. Second thing is we would get paid faster because we then – and control the supply chain back into the marketplace. Well, our payment terms are 90 days. Well, our payment terms are seven. Well, we can't pay that. Well, when do you pay your people? Pay our people bi-weekly. Great. We'll work with you. We'll go 14 days. So when you pay your employees, cut us a check for our employee. Mm. We found out that the client stretched us to $250,000 in, in, in unpaid invoices. We weren't a staffing company then. We were their bank. And they were pushing off all their payroll on us, having no intention to ever pay it off. And then talking with people who are in the financial space later, like, oh, yeah, that's a that's a typical uh, behavior pattern for distressed businesses just to put all your payroll on to the third party. Again, I had a very expensive lesson. Uh, it's the it's the MBA. I, I paid six hundred thousand dollars for my MBA. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, that's yeah, that's an expensive MBA. Um, <laughs> um, early on in in your career, I know you mentioned like years ago you weren't using LinkedIn. Um, even looking back f further than that, like when you were first starting out, like what were you doing then that um, people don't really do now in this staffing space? Like, are they using more, I know you kind of highlighted it in your book, like using more yellow pages and actually co like cold calling people versus right now, do people still do that? Well, you know, yeah, I've been out of it six years, so I, I don't want to talk about what people are doing next. I really it demonstrates my my space, my separation between. Um, I do work with, I coach three staffing companies. None of them do really any cold calling. It's mostly email marketing, things like that. But back in the day, um, yeah, I, I took a picture one time of my desk because I literally started in the back of a buddy's other business, and I had big old yellow pages sitting on the desk and a phone that connected to the wall. That was literally the business at one point. Um, what we used to run newspaper ads, they were big at the time. That was my biggest expense item for the first couple of years. Um, a lot of word of mouth, uh, a lot of signs on the street kind of thing. Um, and then we found that if we were able to get into certain community, we were doing general labor staffing. So it was just, it was put, we call it pushing bodies. You know, you need 15 people. They don't care if it's the same 15 people. They just need 15 people to show up on a production line to push things down the conveyor kind of thing. So we would find these leaders in some of these, these communities in, on the east side of Detroit, you know, down, down in the downriver community, for example. And we would pay, pay rate was like, back in the day, it was like eight bucks an hour. 
we'd find these people who were kind of like leaders in the community. We'd pay them 10. They would go rally up the people. We'd give them a bonus if they filled the bus because the bus would pull up, put all the people on the bus, drive them off, drop them off in Ypsilanti, coming out of, you know, down river, put, drop them off in Mount Clemens, coming out of the east side of Detroit. And those, those, we used local feet on the street even. So it's, uh, it's changed quite a bit. The th- flip of it is now too, because I do keep a little bit of a pulse because I do coach people in that space. There are anywhere, give and take, depending upon the data you look at today in 2023, anywhere from 8 to 10 million job openings in America every day. So it's still, it's a candidate-controlled market because the candidate has more options than the consumer. So the businesses have to offer signing bonuses and better benefits in a lot of cases, things like that. Because if I don't like working for you today, Chris, I can go work for John or Sally tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, 100%. Yeah. Um. Really quick about cold calling. How how tough is that? Like, is that a tough so, thing to do? I, I can only tell you my experience. Um, it was awful for me. It was torturous. It was it, it tapped into deeper fears of being rejected. Um, it was really, really, it was the biggest bottleneck in my professional career was my struggle around cold calling. Um, so when I turned the business around, I took a look at what, here are the three or four things I do pretty well ran them past my coach to get a third-party perspective on it. And then I started hiring other people to do the things that I wasn't good at. So I tell my CEOs now, if you're struggling with something, what can, there are three things, three options I see you having basically. You can automate it, you can delegate it, hire it to somebody else, uh, automate, delegate, or outsource it. So if you're not good at something, who else, someone is going to be good at it. You know, I, I had some great recruiters who were who really good at it. They were fearless. I would just listen to them and I sit there and make, man, I just admire them. It's like, um, you know, if you're playing baseball, I'm, I'm a good hitter, but I'm a terrible pitcher. So I, I respect anybody who can pitch. It's like they just have a skill set that I don't have, but yet the team needs. Well, in a business, you need people who can sell. You need people who are fearless and you need people who, who don't they, – they can either deflect the no, or absorb it and learn from the no, but that, I was, that was just not my sweet spot. I've I've heard I've listened to a lot of different people talk about like sales and cold calling. Uh, one of the guys you might know, uh, Grant Cardone. I've heard mm-hmm. I've heard um, a lot of podcasts with him, and he one thing I that stands out that he said was he's always looking for no's. Like he mm-hmm. wants to just bring them up like out from underneath you know the surface because he wants to address them and anything that. You know, if there are like underlying, you know, concerns, he doesn't want to just leave them like, you know, unresolved. He wants them people to like speak up. And so he Mm -hmm. actually like goes out and looks for them, which is for me, I'm like, oh, I don't want to hear a no. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I I was probably more like you. I just want to be liked and I just want you to say yes. And the frustrating part for me is they would say no before they knew what I was offering. Mm. And, you know, if you back in the day, you know, there's, you drive past a manufacturing facility, write down the, the name of the address, uh, you know, ABC Manufacturing, 123 Main Street, Warren, Michigan. And we call them because they have a big sign saying help wanted. So you, have, you, you need help. I have people who need jobs. How can we work together? And they say, no, we don't want to use recruiters. We don't do this. We don't do Well, if, it, if what you're doing is working for you, you probably wouldn't have the help wanted signs. So what you're doing isn't working. Let me help you. And it, and it would just be very... Um, very frustrating in the space of you're saying no, you don't know what you're saying no to. And I used to find it really insulting. (laughs) Yeah. I, that's such a good point. I, that they don't even want to hear you out like to begin with and that they don't even know what they're saying no to because they don't even want to hear you out. Yeah. Right. It's, that's like a, just, just like a terrible feedback loop that is hard to, it, it seems like it would be hard to break. It, it is really hard to break. I used to have this cartoon that would sit on my desk, and it, it was just hand-drawn from a, a sales magazine. And it's uh, back in the medieval days. It's a guy's on a castle, and he's got people coming at him. They're shooting down at them, but there's he's shooting one bow and arrow. Behind On the other side is someone making a decision to, to not buy a machine gun because they just don't even want to hear the, the, the presentation. It's like, no, we don't need what you're selling. We don't need you. When in the imagery, clearly to defend the castle, you need a better weapon. But nope, it's just easier for us to say no. 
But when you when you look at it from a from a brain science perspective and a behavioral perspective, human beings are, are driven by negative bias. We're driven to say no. Um, it keeps us. We think it keeps us safe. So if you're a buyer for a company, you're telling me no because if you t- say yes to me, and I let you down, that I'm not now a negative reflection of you to your superior, and that could potentially, in your mind, put your job at jeopardy. I yeah. just didn't understand it at the time. Yeah. Oh, I that that makes sense. Yeah. Um, with with what you do today and like the industries that you work with, what is there one industry that stands out that you primarily work with CEOs from like a particular industry or is it like kind of a variety from all over? It's more the variety from all over. Um, what are the, the commonalities are the behaviors of the CEOs. A lot of my CEOs have used other coaches and had an un, unpleasant experience or an unsatisfying experience. Um, they've used coaches that teach a process. There's a process called EOS, the Entrepreneurial Operating System. It's a great process, but it's a process to run your business. What I work with is a process to run your life, and your business is a part of it. And you know, in the the twenty three people I work with, which is a pretty decent sized coaching group, and I talk to them every week, so it's it's a big time commitment for both parties. Um, we find that. If they put an EOS process in and they don't use it, yet they expect their employees to use it, that's an interesting conversation. Do as they say, not as I do. Um, and, and recognizing and realizing that, you know, I, I had, I had a, a, just put a new testimonial video on my website. We interviewed nine of my clients and we, we did a, a, a composite reel. And they all shared that they're basically lifelong learners. They met me when they were sick and tired of being sick and tired. They were like, this isn't, my life isn't working for me. My business isn't working for me. I'm working for my business. My business isn't working for me. Those kind of stories. But all nine of them had different breakthrough value in the work we do together. So what I'd say of, of the 23 of them, I treat them all the same way, 23 different ways. There are 23 different engagements. I use a lot of the same methodologies of reflective inquiry and, and things like that to help them get unstuck. And that's the other thing is they're all stuck somewhere. You know, if you've got too much money and too much time in Maslow's hierarchy of needs and all your baseline needs are met and you're spinning up in the zone of self-reflection and self-actualization, I can help you there. If you're down in fight or flight in fear, you don't feel safe in your business because of the bank calling your note or market declining, I can help you there. It's, it's working with the mindset of the entrepreneur and how does that practically apply to, to the output that they're stuck in and getting the life they don't want. Okay. And now with, with your book from suck to success, what was the story there or how did you decide to write a book? What, what was the background? Great question. So the book took me five years and eight revisions and it it continually. So the book that came out was very different than the book I started out with. Um, but I, I recognized and realized that, um, you know, as I was transitioning from being an active CEO, and I knew my North Star was to go out and coach other people and because it fill, fills my why. I, I was blessed. I met Simon, Simon Sinek, God, 15 years ago before he ever did his TED Talk or anything else. He helped me figure out my why, which is improve lives. Um, I, I, why I said, I want to have the opportunity and the time I have left on this earth, because you never know what our time is going to be, to impact as many people as possible. So that was where I started. I want to have impact. Well, how can I impact people? I could appear on a podcast like yours. Uh, I could go speak from stage. Uh, I could coach my CEOs and everything in between, run, run workshops, what have you. But then it dawned on me that I'm only able to impact a small amount of the population because I'm coaching CEOs and C-level executives. If I write a book, someone can't afford to hire me as a coach, and I do understand that there's going to be some people who can't, well, this book can be helpful to them, and it can make an impact. Um so I started working on it and writing it. And then the pandemic hit and all of my speaking appearances got canceled. All of my travel was put down. So I had this massive amount of time available. So then I really started iterating and iterating and iterating and iterating. But at the end of the day, I, I ultimately wanted to figure out what legacy do I want to leave on this planet? How many people can I impact with my stories? And how many people that can, go, how many other people feel like they're, they're, they're stuck and suck and they want to get to success? And, and can I be, potentially part of their change. So I really started to think about how can I best serve others 
once I figured that out versus you know, the original iteration when I retired was these agencies wanted to hire me to go speak at their conferences, but I didn't have a book. And they're like, well, how do we know you're going to be any good? What takeaway value are you going to have? I'm like, okay. So I was working with my agent. She goes, you need to go write a book. So I was just going to write a book to be able to get on stage, which is very self-serving versus when I put it out, it's like, how can I serve others? And if this book has value and thankfully it became a bestseller, uh, then then abundance should come my way, which I'm blessed to say that it has. Yeah, no, and it's a, it's a very good book. Um, and I, I I got. I feel like I got a lot of value uh, from it. That's great. And one of the things early on in the book, um, I wanted to ask you because I, th- I think you asked this, like what what holds people back? And mm-hmm. one of the things I feel like that holds me back is imposter syndrome and mm-hmm. just feeling like, even though, like I went to school and I have experience, whatever I have is just never enough. And right. I'm always trying to um, improve and get better at things, but I just feel like I'm not as good as anybody else. Um, do you think is that like kind of one of like one of the bigger things that hold people back? Uh, you and I are cut from the same cloth. It, it held me back for years, decades, literally decades. You know, my version, and there's five different types of imposter syndrome, um, but the, my version was similar to yours. Uh, no matter whatever I do, it's never going to be good enough. And I have to be all things to all people all the time, kind of like in an oracle state, which puts such enormous pressure because there's none of us can be an oracle. Nobody knows everything. Um, and then my internal self-talk, like I talk about in the book, the Itty Bitty Shitty Committee, would then start having these, these meetings in my head talking me out of things. And I remember when I hired my coach, Greg said, so you know, what do you think you should do in the scenario? And I said, I should do A, B, C, and D. He's like, that sounds great. Why, don't you, why didn't you do that? So well, I started thinking I don't know all the answers. I started talking myself out of it, and then I started talking to my leadership team, and they talked me out of it, and da 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 da. So it, the the imposter syndrome for me impacted my confidence. Um, now I still have I still have some imposter syndrome on certain days. I don't want you to think it ever goes away. But now uh, I, I was blessed to spend ten years working with a neuroscientist by the name of Dr. Daniel Friedland, who wrote the the forward to my book before he passed away, and. He helped me recognize, I kept trying to solve my imposter. I just want it to go away. I want to address it, fix it, put it on a shelf and never deal with it again. He's like, it doesn't work that way because you always will have it. But if it's screaming at you, how do we get it to go to a whisper? He said, oh, how do I do that? And he taught me these techniques of how to recognize it, work with it, because really imposter syndrome at its baseline, and that's why working with a brain scientist was so beneficial to me because I was like, I, I, don't, I don't need a... Uh, a Tony Robbins, just talk nice to yourself speech, because that didn't work. It's like, how, why am, how does this work and how do I work with it? And he said, you know, your, your imposter syndrome sits in your amygdala. And in your amygdala, that's designed to keep you safe. That's a fight or flight part of your brain. You don't want to get eaten by dinosaurs and you don't want to get hit by a car. So it's designed to keep you safe. And that serves you well when you're an infant or a small child, look both ways before crossing the street. Well, at that point, Danny and I had this breakthrough. I was about 40, 42, he's like, you've got this. Talk to, change your dialogue. Say that you have to, you have to engage your imposter syndrome. Say, Chris, okay, Chris, I'm afraid. I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. I'm not gonna be good enough. I'm not gonna be good enough. I appreciate that. I know when you tell me I'm not gonna be good enough, you're trying to keep me safe. Appreciate you for that. I, as a 32 year old man, know how to keep myself safe. And if I happen to make a mistake, I know how to fix my problems, but thank you. So imagine, this is the analogy I give my clients. Your imposter syndrome is in the driver's seat of your car. You're in the passenger seat. Just switch seats. Mm. It's still going to be that backseat driver, but as it quiets, then move it to the back seat. It's still going to sit in the car. It just gets quieter, and you learn how to deal with it better. That's stuff we're just never taught in, in homes, in schools. But once I learned how to do that and recognize that it's still going to be there, I have to engage it differently. It just opened up my life. Yeah, that, I, I love that analogy that, you know, I am in I am in the driver's seat or I should be in the driver's seat. Right. And if you're not, somebody is, and that's your imposter syndrome. Yeah. Okay. That that's really cool. Um yeah, I, I like that analogy a lot. And yeah, I, I get this all the time in wherever I've worked, 
I, I've always had this and maybe it's gotten a little bit better. Um, and my, my girlfriend tells me this all the time. Like you're like, you're smart. Like, you know how to do these things. I'm a software developer and okay. you know, you're, you're smart. You know how to do these things. Like just stop worrying. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't know. It's just so hard sometimes. I don't know. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting because she's trying to support you, right? Mm-hmm. She wants to build you up. If I were to talk to your girlfriend, because I, I, I do this a lot with my clients, because sometimes I, you know, sometimes I have to talk to the spouse, uh, significant others. I'll always say to them, said people want four things. So Chris wants only four things in life. You want others to see, hear, know, and accept you. When others see, hear, know, and accept us, we then we do the same for ourselves. So the the quickest way she could do is pivot from being your your champion cheerleader, which we love, love that you want to cheer, cheer me is to being an empathetic listener. And there's a model for that where she validates you. She asks you massive curiosity questions where then instead of her telling you, you know you got this, you come out on the other and say, hey, I got this. And it's just a different technique versus being your cheerleader. Being a cheerleader is, uh, ha- has limited effectiveness. And I know her intentions, I'm sure, are very sweet and honorable. It's when you... When she mirrors back to you, so it sounds like you have some fears. Oh, man, I am freaking out. I'm not sure I'm going to be able to write this code. Client's coming in on Monday, blah, 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 blah. Whatever story you're telling yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, that Chris, that totally makes sense. You're seen. She mirrors you. You're heard. She says that makes sense. You're now known. And it just rebuilds your internal dialogue through, your, through the, the reflective inquiry she's giving you versus being the cheerleader. I, you know, that's funny. That kind of reminds me, I, I read a book. Um, what was it called? Um, how to, Oh, never split the difference by oh, with Chris Voss. Yeah. I love Chris Voss. Yeah. I, I, I've watched a lot of interviews with him and I really liked his book. And I think in the book he talks about, um, labeling and mm-hmm. from a like hostage negotiation perspective, he would label, uh, their emotions and saying, oh, it sounds like you're upset. And then, well, yeah, I am upset. And yeah. Tell, tell me more about how upset you are. Yeah. What's upsetting you? Yeah. That's reflective inquiry. So a really good friend of mine, I just talked to him on Friday, um, is works for Chris or works with Chris. I'll be very clear in case Jonathan hears this. He works <laughs> with Chris, not for Chris. And I was telling, cause he started looking at the work I'm doing. I started looking at the work they're doing and John does a different kind of consulting. And the, the reflective inquiry stuff blends in beautifully and it's almost, you know, twins to the work Chris Voss does in Never Split the Difference. So if you like that model, uh, you, you'll love the work of Dr. Marsha Reynolds. She's kind of the, the, the godmother of reflective inquiry. And the, the, you take the situations out, you know, whether you've got a stressful business situation or a life and death situation over in Afghanistan, the techniques are really similar. And I believe my, the story I tell myself is that is the way of the future for how human beings communicate. Mm. Uh, Chris has really done a great job of putting the sex appeal and the sizzle with hostage negotiation and the CIA and clandestine. And I love his marketing is freaking amazing. Marsh is a little bit more holistic from a you know psychiatrist perspective, but the, the techniques are so similar and they're both spot on, you know, when we, we help people get unspooled of that knot in their brains and in their, uh, their, their central nervous system and they start working with us differently, your girlfriend can't fix your, your coding issue unless she's a coder. But she, she can help you fix your coding issue through reflective inquiry or the stuff they talk about in Never Split the Difference. That's, I'm going to write that down. That's going to be a conversation her and I are going to have later maybe. <laughs> I wish you yeah. great luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> well, so if your girlfriend is so curious, so you've got Chris Voss, uh, never split the difference. You've got Marshall Reynolds, but there's also uh, a, a, a people out there named Harville Hendricks and John Gottman. And they teach that methodology in the couple space. Mm. So you got Voss on hostages. You got Marsha on coaching and you got Hendricks and Gottman in the couple space. And in the couple space, it's called Imago, which is spelled I-M-A-G-O. So it's great for couples to learn how to communicate with each other because 
I literally have never met. Now you're you're a little bit younger. Maybe you got an advantage that I don't have. But I've never met a couple that is are great communicators, including me me being part of that couple. Um, it, it's not a technique we're taught in our households or at our school, high schools, colleges, or universities. Um, but it's essential for for human relationships. A hostage negotiator has a relationship with a hostage holder. A business person has a relationship with a customer or an employee. A couple has a relationship with one another. They're all relationships. Mm. Yeah. Oh, this is good stuff. Um, pivoting a little bit, Todd. Uh, now, you, I know earlier you had mentioned uh, Simon Sinek, and mm-hmm. I, I haven't read his book. I've heard of his book, Start With Why. Yes. And I know in in your book, I, th- I think you talked a little bit about this, like finding your why and how do people how do you coach people to like find their like why or their purpose in life or business? That is probably the hardest thing to do. Uh, it took me two years to find my why. Um, it's you know it, it's it ties into the Japanese concept of ikigai. And there's a bunch of memes out there and a bunch of demonstrations, but it's basically three different circles that overlay and create a, a common overlap. And then that overlap is the why it's, you know, what do you, what do you, what do you do? Well, what will people pay you for? And then totally blanking out on the third piece. Um, but for me, helping my clients find their why is really challenging because they'll, they'll go to my, my purpose in life is my family. Okay. That's, that sounds incredibly noble. The reality is your purpose can't be tied to a group or a person because that group or person could go away at any time. And actually, I learned that piece from a monk. His name is Don Dapani. So I, I love hanging around with super smart people who have a lot more life experience or a lot more because I just get these little nuggets. And I did a whole presentation on my purpose. Don Dapani and I were backstage afterwards. He goes, I really like what you do. He goes, but I think you're missing something. Can I, would you mind if I share it? He goes, you're missing to, what will you sacrifice to go live your why? And that's a struggle a lot of clients have. So if they're, so we have to pivot them away. First and foremost, your why can't be tied to a single group or a single person. Your why can't be your business. Your why can't be your family because they could go away. Second thing is what are you willing to sacrifice to go live your why? Um, the best example is my, that I can give is my, my life. Um, I, I love my work. I get excited. My and your why should give you energy, not take your energy. I sometimes do have crucial, tough clients, but I still have a lot of energy. I sometimes get into a, a room and, and things aren't going well. I have to bring the room back. It's but it gives me energy. If it depletes my energy, I pay attention to that because it's not tied into my why. But to get to from Detroit to Phoenix to give a, a workshop, um, what am I sacrificing? I'm sacrificing being at home. I'm sacrificing being away from the people I want to spend my time with. So I have an upfront crucial conversation with them. So they, they know that when I, when I up my energy, I up my internal reserves by doing work that enriches me. When I get home, I'm going to be better than when I left. And I'm going to be able to be more present, more fully engaged in this, these relationships and in these conversations versus not doing that. So, but I'm willing to sacrifice being at home to go live my why. Clients really struggle with that, and they they always want to know what how do I to live my why? How, what is the how? How do I get there? How do I do it? And then we throw in at the, at the end of chap at the end of every chapter of my book is the active learning cycle. And at the end, the if they, they struggle doing the active learning cycle because the acting it, it's 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 an iterative loop. It's not a A plus B equals C code. And so they they will often make it honestly harder than it needs to be, mm. you know, or the struggle becomes you want to you want to make a, a group of CEOs cry. Ask them two questions: What do you want? Why do you want it? You think, oh, that's crazy. I want to be rich. I want to be famous. I want to run a big company. I want to run a public company. I want to be able to have freedom and flexibility. It's usually the answers you get. That's what you want. You want to be you want to be a millionaire. No problem. Make a millionaire tomorrow. Why do you want it? Uh, because then I have freedom of choice. Great. What's why does freedom of choice matter to you? <laughs> I want to control my time. Why do you want to control your time? Ultimately, when you get to the root cause issue, they don't know why they want it, and that's where the pain exists, and that's where repair needs to take place. I, I love the CEO. I had a CEO do this to me one time. He's like, 
I want to be rich. He said this in front of his entire team. There's like 25 people in the room. I want to be rich. They're like, we're not surprised. Why do you want to be rich? Well, I want to be, I want the company to be so profitable that I can share abundance with my team. Smart move, gets everybody on the going towards the North Star. Why is that important to you? And he sat there and he started to cry. He goes, I grew up poor. I got hand-me-down clothes. I got shoes that didn't fit. I never want any child to ever feel that sense of shame and embarrassment. Wow. It changed the room. It changed the team. It changed how they saw this guy who 20 minutes earlier said, I want to be rich. Company, company took off like a rocket because now you've got 25 people going in one direction based upon a, a purpose. And it wasn't really being rich. It was being financially successful because we do great work for our clients. When we do great work for our clients, we get paid a fair amount. We get paid a fair pay, a fair wage, essentially. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to share that wage abundantly with you so none of your kids ever have to go through shame, guilt, and embarrassment like I did. And when he finally was vulnerable, Brene Brown 101, we lead with vulnerability, then others in the room got behind that. It became inspiring. Wow, yeah, that's really powerful. And the the, um, word that you mentioned, iterative, that reminds me of in software development, we have the same thing where there's there's sprints that we plan, which are like about two weeks, and we try to get a work done in that sprint to then deploy uh, changes to whatever app we're working on so the app is never, it might like initially, like, you know, a couple of years ago it was deployed, people are using it and that's great, but it's continuous development on that app. And we deploy, you know, different versions every two weeks, you know, to keep up with maintenance or any bugs that come up. Um, so yeah, that, that's cool. I kind of tie it back to you're a spot. I love tech companies. I've got a three or four of them that I work with. Love them because this is just their shorthand for it. Fail forward, fail fast. Mm. And, and they just, we iterate, we iterate, we iterate, we iterate, we iterate. I, I just got an iOS update on my phone yesterday. It fixed bugs. That means it was not working. And, and I got one CEO. He's totally embraced the work we do. And he, he refuses to call it failure. It's really learning. And I remember talking to, to Dr. Friedland about this years ago. Because it was tied in the itty, you know, itty bitty shitty committee in the imposter center. And I said, all I am is a failure. I'm a failure. I'm a failure. I'm a failure. I'm a failure. Well, one, I'm reprogramming my, my brain. My brain doesn't know the difference between what happened and what I tell it. So it doesn't help me well. Number two, he goes, he goes, Todd, failing is nothing more than a word in the dictionary. It doesn't exist. So tell me more. He goes, if you try something, you write a line of code, it doesn't work. You just learned something. It doesn't work. You didn't fail. It doesn't work. So now we need to find a way that does work. So failure doesn't exist. Replace the word failure with the word learning because every time I fail, it's just another step along my path to being successful. That's really what it is. And it's getting people to reprogram themselves around that because they think, well, if I just just tell myself I'm a failure, I'm going to work extra hard because I don't want to be a failure. That's not true. If you realize you're learning and that you're going to not get it right the first time, then that's part of your process as a programmer or as a human being. And if, as, especially as we parent or we lead teams, if we can pass that knowledge and that, that, that expectation of behavior onto others, like, hey, man, chances are it's going to be a long process and we're going to do a sprint. And in this sprint, you're going to have a lot of ways that it doesn't work. So keep your head down. Keep grinding. Keep asking questions. Come to me with things. Let's brainstorm this thing out. What did you do? Let's see what didn't work and let's see what can potentially work in the future. Mm, yeah. Now, um, I guess oh, one random question speaking of, I know earlier we talked about Simon Sinek and you said that you met him actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, what was the story behind that? So yeah, um, I'm, I did a learning program through a group called EO, the Entrepreneurs Organization um, in, from 2003 to 2006 to, to learn best business practices out at MIT University in Boston. Um, after that, I got invited to be in a secondary class, and one of the speakers that year was Simon Sinek. And he literally he hadn't even written his book yet. Didn't have I don't think he even had his TED talk yet. But somebody met him and they invited him to speak at our conference. We didn't have any money, so we didn't pay him anything. I think we paid for his hotel or his uh, his flight in. And he did the three circles, and I was blown away. And 
I hired him to work with me because like I need making money for me was a scorecard, but it wasn't fun. And it was at the time coming out of it, you know, I, I just didn't know what I didn't know. And I said, there's gotta be something more. And that's why, that's what I, I wanted a purpose. And we, there started coming all this stuff out about, you know, core values. When I started my company in 1997, we didn't have core values. We didn't know, no one talked about core values. Like you have a mission statement and your mission statement is to conquer the world and whatever. Um, but then the core value stuff started coming in and then cynics with the why stuff started coming out and it started shifting how we interacted as entrepreneurs with our business. And so this, you know, every April I go back to MIT, still in the group, see new speakers, get new ideas because I'm never going to be done. I have lifelong learner disease. And so when I met Cynic, he was a quirky guy. Um, he saw the world from such a different perspective. I was fascinated by that, not threatened by that. Um, great. I think, he, I think he's a really great speaker. He's, I think he charges like a $200,000 for a speech now. Oh, wow. So he does really well. Um, personally, I found him to be... Um, like 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 most creatives, a little socially uncomfortable at times. Uh, like I, we're, not, we're not like we don't keep in touch. We're not friends anymore. But I worked with them for like two years. Wow, wow, very cool. Um, yeah, I'm gonna have to check out his book. I've heard a lot about it, um, mm -hmm. but I've never I haven't picked it up yet. It, pivoting back to your book, it, you had this one concept that you wrote about uh, ATV um, mm -hmm. being uh, authentic, transparent, and vulnerable. Um, I was running. Can you talk a little bit about those three concepts? Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to. Um, I found when I got into trouble in my business, uh, I was not authentic. I was not transparent and I wasn't vulnerable with my staff and I wasn't honest with myself because I, I would put forward errors and I would put forward the impression of I'm in charge and I've got this under control while well, all in the behind the scenes, you know, the, the kitchen's burning and we're not having dinner tonight because I'm blowing everything up. So I think authenticity, transparency, and vulnerability, it creates, when, when we are authentic as human beings with each other, we immediately create a connection. Uh, when, we're, when we're transparent and, you know, part of being transparent is to say, I don't have all the answers. What do you think? You know, as, in my generation of leadership, it was called being a rugged individualist. It goes back to feeding your imposter syndrome. Well, if I, if I am the oracle and I know all things about everything to everybody, then, then I'm essential and I'm needed. And that's all That's all tr not true. It, it, it just doesn't work that way. But I think vulnerability is the most important thing in that, in that model. When we lead with vulnerability, it, people cut us some slack. They will give us a break. Um, leading with vulnerability even looks like saying, I'm sorry first. Hey, we, we, had, just had, we had a big... Uh, Big confrontation in the boardroom last night. You know, I was thinking about this morning, man. I, I screwed up. I'm really sorry. I, I was not respectful to you. Uh, I, I did personal attacks versus staying on the topic. My part in this is I, I didn't come in it from a good headspace, and I owe you an apology. And I'm going to send an apology to the rest of the board. That's that's powerful. Um, vulnerability has degrees. I'll go on stage and talk about the two worst days of my life every day because I'm comfortable doing that. I know that my audience will have judgments about what I share, but I know my audience will never judge me more harshly than I judged myself. So I'm good to go there. Um, someone said to me, well, I should just be vulnerable with everybody. Oh, gosh, no. That is not a safe thing to do. You can, it's degrees of vulnerability, and you want to go deeper. You want to go deeper with your most trusted tribe. You don't want to go out there to a bunch of strangers and talk about, things that you're not sure what the backlash is going to be. Pay attention to that. Um, I think anybody who's interested in I coach of my 23 CEOs, 14 of them are women. And it's fascinating because we'll spend more time in the vulnerability category talking about how I'm vulnerable with them and they're in a safe space to be vulnerable. You know, we create psychological safety with somebody. You've got to be vulnerable. Um, and I got, I've got one client who's a big Brene Brown fan and we talk about her a lot. And then she started watching this TV show called Ted Lasso, which I had not seen. And she goes, she starts calling me Todd Lasso because she goes, gosh, you remind me so much of Ted Lasso being so vulnerable, talking about all these things. And when we, when I coach people from a space of being vulnerable, it allows them that safe space to come out and be vulnerable because they're not, they're not used to doing that. Um, 
you know, it's, we live in really tough times, especially I argue my female CEOs sometimes more than my male CEOs. You know, you can't, you, if, if you're a male CEO and you're in command and in charge and leading a room, you're seen as strong. If you're a female CEO and you're leading a room and you don't do it just with a nice enough, positive enough language, enough sprinkles of sugar, you're seen as a bitch. Mm. And they report that I've watched them, and that's not cool. That's not true. They're doing they're doing that masculine behavior, but they're seen differently. And the ones who are most effective is we've helped them break down the opinions of the staff so that everybody we're on the same page. And I help them to be authentic, transparent, and vulnerable so much more often than my male clients because they have they have a, a higher wall to climb based upon the perceptions of others. Mm. Yeah, that's I I can I totally get that with the comparison between uh, female and male. Um, I'm pretty sure I've seen that like throughout my life um, in various jobs that I've had. Like if I've had like female managers and male managers, um, yeah. Now, um, one other thing that I th- this was kind of cool, I, and I know later on in the book you talked about um, giving. And giving, was it giving more than you're comfortable with? Yeah. And it kind of reminded me of something, well, that, that kind of I try to do with uh, the podcast and the YouTube channel I have is just, you know, that, that content's for free and, you know, anybody can watch it. I'm not putting like a barrier to it. And I know uh, my parents, they, they had a business, uh, they had a bakery and they would, all the time we would go out to like food shows and, you know, give like free samples you know, mm-hmm. to, to have people try out the products. I know in music too, I see a lot of artists, they just upload their music for free to SoundCloud or, you know, have their album for free for download for uh, whoever wants to listen to it. Um, how how important is it to kind of give people access to like whatever you're producing? Is it more for like them to try it out and then does it kind of build like a trust factor between like customers and yourself that hey you know i want you to like this i want the feedback from you trying it out you know let me know how it is is it kind of like that well i i got a lot of that i think i even credit him in the book is gary v about give more than anything else and you know the way he grew his platform when he had his wine shop is he would give all these tastings and these samples and all this content and how to how to pair wines and what wines do this. And I'm not a wine person, so that there's literally that's all I'm going to talk about on the wine. But I like the concept of what he talked about. So that what I found was givers gain, and if we give more, we get more. It just comes at us differently. We just never know. Um, whenever I whenever I can, I'll give away copies of my book for free, and you know. If someone wants to buy it, great. But if, you know, especially younger people, some kid says, yeah, I'm really interested in your book. I just can't afford it. I'll just send them a copy. You know, it's, it's, I think it's important for people to, we should care for each other. And, you know, I, I've given free coaching sessions to people. No, I won't coach somebody for free. There is a boundary to that. There is a limit. Um, But, you know, if, you know, I had, I had someone who heard me on a podcast when the book came out, and he was like in Nigeria, some third world country. And he sent me a really nice note, and he he, he said, you know, he, he goes, I make like eight dollars a week, and he goes, so I sent him a copy of my book. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it was probably fifty bucks to ship it there, plus the other book cost fifteen bucks. Was it just feels good to give the. Also, if you look at the brain science behind giving, it, you know, if we are struggling, if we're having a bad day, we're having a blue day, or we have had a bad week and we're feeling a little, a little depressed, the quickest solution I've found is to give abundantly. And you think, well, I'm already feeling like crap. You want me to give? I'm already feeling low. You want me to give more? Well, it's, it's, the, it's the reverse process. When we give more, we show gratitude. We show appreciation. We give abundantly. We actually release new chemicals in our brain to help us. So it's 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 a reciprocal relationship. Uh, I remember during COVID when I lost all my, my speaking opportunities because the world shut down. Um, talked to Danny, 
And he says, give more, don't give less. My coaching practice grew 600% in 12 months because I just kept giving. I coached 42 CEOs in 67 days for free. Wow. Crazy thing is none of them became clients. None of them. <laughs> but the, 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 the good word about me and the, the people they knew. I mean, I coached, coached a person who had a, you know, a home-based Avon business and another one who had a home-based fitness business. And I coached this other CEO who was planning to file bankruptcy. And we had a long two-hour conversation and she decided not to file bankruptcy. And I, now we stay connected on social media and her business has rebounded. She, I mean, so that's the, that, that's the joy. But when others say great things about you because you've given to them abundantly, that's the best marketing I've ever used. So I just think if you can give abundantly, do it. Um, do what you can. Again, I guess I'm not going to coach somebody for a year for free, but I, I've given free sessions. I've given copies of the book for free um, because you just don't know. You don't know. And this is the interesting part, too, where I got a little bit tripped on this recently. I was talking to a friend of mine. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm doing a lot of this giving. I just, I, you know, I never know if it's ever going to, I don't ever know who it impacts. And he gave me this really great example. He's like, well, have you ever met so-and-so? I said, no, because well, I know you impacted him because he's my nephew. And he was house sitting at my house. My, your book was on the, the, the coffee table and he read it while he was house sitting. And he came back and he was like, oh, oh this book's amazing. And he, he goes, he doesn't want to talk to me about my vacation. You know, my wife and I can walk in and they're like, hey, hey, Chad, how are you? She's like, oh my God, I read this book while you were gone. He's talking, he's holding the book up. Chad's never going to call you, but you've impacted his life. So don't always be looking for the immediate gratification. I'm like, point taken. Wow, yeah. Wow, very cool. Of Are there plans in your future to write another book? Great question. Um, I have a framework done for a third book. Um, I'm not sure. It's a lot of time and a lot of, a lot of pieces. I, I'm blessed to be busy. I mean, the best thing to, happen, to, to get the book down is like iterated like three times during the pandemic to complete suck to success. Um, I find that like I got stuck when I was writing the book. I got no, writing a book about getting unstuck and I got stuck. And I, I, had, I ended up hiring this, this great person named Sarah. She was a former editor for Outdoor Magazine. She used to work for Time Magazine. Great credentials. And she would just help me get unstuck around like the final 15% of the book. Because I was just, she, she was just essential. But Sarah costs money. So there's that. Um, and the, I still get traction off of the current book. Mm. So it's one of those weird things. Um, I, I just, chances are I probably will. It's going to be, I just got to set, set the time aside or find a good collaborator because I'm, I'm super busy when I wasn't before. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I think there's a lot to talk about, about around psychological safety. I think there's a lot to talk about around relationships in business and in personal. And how they coincide, like we just did the example of, you know, between what I do, what Chris Voss does, what Marshall Reynolds does, and what Gottman and, and Hendricks do around communication. Not a lot of that is talked about. Um, I think coming out of COVID, the biggest thing I've seen is disconnection within families, communities, and, and business. So that's kind of the problem I'm looking to solve is how do we create deeper connections? I just, yeah, I just... I guess I need someone like you, Chris, to challenge me to sit my butt down and start working on it. <laughs> so I got, I've got the outline done, and I, I just know it's it's going to take a little bit of time. Yeah. Well, when if it comes out, when it comes out, I'll, I'll definitely I'll definitely be a customer. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, for for those who are interested, where's the best place to buy uh, from Suck to Success? Is it uh, Amazon or the website that you have for the book? Yeah. Well, so if you go to if you go to the website from sucktosuccess.com, um, you can get the first chapter for free, give abundantly. Uh, if you like what you read, then Amazon. Um, someone wrote me recently, hey, they wanted an autographed copy of the book. Well, you can't get that from Amazon, so send it to me and I'll send you the I'll sign it. My, my, as my son says, it's like, yeah, your book's fifteen bucks on Amazon. As soon as you sign it, it's now worth twelve. Like, got to keep got to keep you humble, Dad. Got to keep you humble. Um, so that's a great place. Uh, you can go to my other website, extraordinaryadvisors.com. If you want to contact me, if you need a free hour of my time, again, give abundantly. Happy to do that as well. And are you on any social media, Facebook or Instagram, Twitter? Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm on, I'm on Facebook. I primarily live on Facebook, LinkedIn, and, uh, Instagram. Um, 
so yeah, people can connect with me there. Certainly. Um, I think I know, I know my Instagram handle is really easy. It's Todd Palmer, the number two, because some, some other Todd Palmer got Todd Palmer and another Todd Palmer got Todd Palmer number one. Um, and I am the, I was the first time, I was one of the first adopters of LinkedIn because I was a recruiter. So I had a, I, I had a problem with my LinkedIn account one time. And I had to call customer service. And this guy was so excited to talk to me. I'm like, I was like, he goes, you're one of the first. I go with the first what? He goes, he goes, you're one of the first 1 million people to sign up for LinkedIn. Wow. Oh, cool. It's like, what was it like? I'm like, what? I, he was just like, he was so excited. He must love working at LinkedIn. It's like, oh my gosh, we never hear from like you OGs. I'm like, eh, well, yeah, I, I, I can't find my password or what the hell my problem was, right? Um, but yeah, I, th- I think, you know, LinkedIn is, is a powerful tool. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting. I'm part of some Facebook communities and they've been really interesting too, just on coaching and around leadership and things like that. So yeah, I, I feel that it's essential, especially, you know, for my generation to be tied into some social media, because that's where I find if someone's interested in buying the book or hiring me as a coach, they'll research me on LinkedIn before, or, or Facebook or Instagram before they make a commitment. Mm, okay. Well, Todd, this is, this has been a great conversation. Oh, Chris, um, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Um, I will include links to uh, your book, uh, your website. Um, I can include links to your socials as well uh, in the episode description when it comes out. Great. Um, and just, yeah, no, thank you. I, I'm glad we could make this happen and connect. Thank you for reaching out. It was great to be with you. And everybody out there, uh, thank you very much for listening. My name is Chris. This has been Cheetash. Take care, everybody.